0: Hey, how's it going? This is Craig Cannon, and you're listening to Y Combinators Podcast. Today's episode is with Allie Kriegsman and Alana Branston. They're the founders of Bulletin, which is a platform that allows brands to share the cost of a physical store. They currently have two locations, one in Soho and the other in Williamsburg, and there are more coming. So Allie and Alana went through the YC Fellowship Program, and then they later went through the winter 2017 batch of YC. We ended up meeting up in New York to talk about what they're working on. All right, here we go. There were a bunch of questions about you guys kind of, like, pre-YC, mm-hmm. um, and I think maybe the easiest way to do this is, like, flow through from there. So, like, before you guys were in YC, uh, and then fellowship, and then core, and then now. Uh, so, going all the way back, uh, Phil Thomas asked, what did you learn from the fellowship and that you applied during the main YC think, core program?
1: Yeah, I think... So, we did the fellowship in winter of 2016 uh-huh. when Kevin Hale was running it, and... Um, And so I think for us, YC fellowship was all about like figuring out product market fit and like figuring out what we were because we didn't know. Uh, when we got in, we were basically, the concept was this like cooler curated Etsy. So everything was online. Um, we would find these cool emerging brands, um, sell their product online and like have like a content element to Mm -hmm. it. Um, and so it wasn't really working. We had like some brands selling with us, but there was like clear problems. And so I feel like fellowship for us, was about like acknowledging that like this wasn't working. (laughs) Yeah. And like really Kevin actually. Kevin's good for that. Yeah, he really is. Yeah. So acknowledging that wasn't working. And then it's almost kind of gave us permission to just totally tear that down and try a million other things. I think before we kind of got into YC, it just got into that whole mentality, we were like, this is our company and this is what we're doing. And we're going to just keep doing this and, until it works. Um, and I feel like Kevin and like the program in general basically allowed us to be like, okay, this isn't working. Let's try like literally 15 other concepts and yeah. see and get something with some momentum and go with that. Um, and so I feel like we basically used, I think it was two months, that program. And we were just ran like experiments every week. So we're like, okay, what if we, and that's, most of them were ridiculous.
0: What was the worst one?
1: Okay. Okay. <laughs> the there are so <laughs> many bad ones. The
2: worst one <laughs> was, <laughs> so we were selling all of this like beautiful dishware and like it was all decor handmade like emerging brands on yeah. our site. Okay. And Kevin was like, why don't you go to restaurants <laughs> and see if they need help designing their stores and like if they need like a programmatic like interior design solution or like a way to replenish like Forks and knives and stuff. So we spent the entire day, the two of us, like bopping around to different Brooklyn restaurants and being like,
1: how do you like find your mugs? (laughs) And this is like a business where they have like like razor thin margins. We're like, what do you think about like if everything was handmade and like way more expensive and like probably breaks more often? They were like, no, we would never use this. Yeah, and we also
2: knew nothing about the restaurant industry. And like there are programs that they, there. some guy pulled out his phone and was like, here's an app where I can order like 800 limes on demand if I need it. Like this has been figured out already. And we're like, <laughs> okay you're like, like okay gonna do this <laughs> yeah yeah okay. yeah um so that was definitely the worst the worst one and the funniest one funny yeah. and then
0: like so by the time you started working on your product as it is now mm-hmm. that was before YC core right yes. that's what you applied with well
2: right. there was a whole like chunk of time after YC fellowship where we had realized that this editorial magazine model wasn't working um we in the spirit of YC asked our users. So we asked all of the brands that sold on our platform, what they wanted. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that they actually needed more help selling offline than they did selling mm-hmm. online. So they weren't really looking for another like multi-vendor online marketplace or another Etsy or anything of that nature. Um A lot of them made boatloads of money doing like craft fairs and selling in retail environments or doing pop-ups mm-hmm. Um or markets, And so what we did was we listened to that and we said, okay, um, what if we basically just started doing this, um, as many times as we can, as frequently we, as we can, as inexpensively as we can, just to see if there's a there there. Um, so I'll let Alana take over how we found our 18,000 square foot parking lot, but we basically, <laughs> we ran outdoor pop-ups, pitch tents in rain or shine, um, in this almost twenty thousand square foot
1: parking lot in Williamsburg for six consecutive months. Yeah, was the worst. We we be, like, the idea was that we wanted to test this concept without spending a lot of money, mm-hmm. and like that's kind of what we did from the beginning. And so we were just looking for the cheapest possible space to run these things and it works the same way it works now like the brands would pay a weekend fee they'd come up they'd they'd come up in person and sell their product um and so we looked everywhere and the first place we ran it was at a bar there was like a bar with like a big (laughs) courtyard and so these brands we we had like 40 brands a weekend on a good weekend and they'd pay like about $300 mm-hmm. a weekend. And that would give them a table and a chair that we provided. It's like very luxury. <laughs> and they would basically come and like set up their product, like a little booth. And we would just like run a market for Saturday and Sunday. Um, so our weekends and our, like it was Dude. just, this is all we would do. Yeah. And so we did it at this courtyard, and then we wanted a bigger space. So I found this like massive, like <laughs> overgrown. It looked like like a toxic wasteland oh parking gosh. lot. Like it was totally overgrown. Um, it's it's like this
2: asphalt parking lot sitting on top of a swamp. Oh, so it's It's
0: it like was, primo. <laughs> it's like
1: you cannot develop on this property.
0: Yeah. Oh god. Okay. Yeah. But it was yeah. a
1: very good location. It was like in Williamsburg in Brooklyn, like right off, off the of subway traffic. stop. And so we just called like the phone number on the parking lot, like gate. Yeah. <laughs> and so they, we made a deal with them. We got it for super cheap where we could use it every weekend. Um, and yeah, we ran it from like April of 2016 till the end of October okay. that year. Um, and it was a total nightmare because we were outdoors um it was like rain or it would be like the middle of july in new york city and like really brands would just like text us and be like it's a 100 degrees we're not coming
0: (laughs) oh really yeah
1: Yeah. just just because it would be so hot and it would be like to stand outside is probably like inhumane like it was crazy there were a few weekends that were inhumane yeah (laughs) but the good thing was that we were like starting to actually make money and the brands were making money And we were like starting to prove out the model and we could see like, okay, we now know, like we've proven that like brands want to sell in person. They'll pay to sell in person. Um, there's definitely this like lack of, you know, easy to access physical space. Um, and yeah, I feel like we were able to like prove that that summer. Okay.
0: (laughs) And then so at what point did you decide like, all right, let's do YC?
1: So at the, so at the end of October, we were like, this is crazy. Like we can't do these markets anymore. And so we started, we were like, what would be like a more long-term solution? Mm-hmm. Um and so we started looking at actual physical retail spaces, like like a normal with the inside. <laughs> like uh, not swamps. Yeah, I remember yeah, swamps. Um and so we found a store which we still have now, it's like a, a great store in Williamsburg. Um and we basically moved the same model, this like like membership based model, to the store, and so the brands would pay this monthly fee. They'd get access to space, um, but the store was totally run by us, so mm-hmm. they didn't have to show up, and it allowed us to like work with larger brands. Um, and so we we really felt like that model was working even better, and, like we were onto something bigger, or like this isn't just gonna be like another like we booked it out thing.
2: in less than two weeks. It was crazy, yeah. Like
1: we had. I want to say, like,
2: 35 brands paying the membership fee within 12 days of announcing that the store was going to open.
0: Wow. And yeah. so these are all people that were doing the parking lot version?
1: Some of them were. And then some of them were brands. A lot like, of the parking lot people were like, Pete, yeah, <laughs> like, I to <laughs> like, yeah. see you again. <laughs> no, some of them were from the parking yeah, lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of, honestly, I
2: do want to call out, there are a lot of brands that have stuck with us, like, from the very They're beginning, which lit. is yeah. amazing. That's yeah. Cool. yeah, Yeah. Um, um, but
1: mostly it was new Mostly new brands. Because it was kind of open the door to like other types of like slightly larger brands that like Hmm. maybe wouldn't sell in a parking lot all weekend, but like (laughs) they're not carried in Sephora all over the world yet. So, yeah. So, like like, to put a
0: finer point on that, uh, Brian Chappell asked, How did you actually find your first customers? Like, so you filled it quickly, but how did they even find out about you?
2: So, to answer that, I'd say, we when we launched the digital like shoppable magazine version of bulletin we would just reach out to brands that we loved yeah. and be like can we do a profile on you and a long interview and original photography and make this beautiful page for you and they'd yeah. be like yes so we would do that they would see zero sales on our website but <laughs> so pretty though. But it was a it was a really like no one had anything to lose in this situation. Um and so through just maintaining those relationships and then eventually moving into the market model we reached out to those brands that had been on the editorial site they you know said, "Oh, I know these two girls that I worked with on um this previous iteration of the company would recommend other brands to do the parking lot um, and it was honestly we always had a great referral yeah, number okay. um, and I think that that was how and I think with opening the store it was basically tapping the network of brands that had been doing the pop-up. Um, and then, you know, creating a nice little email and sending that to brands on other e-commerce sites that we thought might want to sell in person. We obviously looked at New York now renegade other sites that did this like IRL sales thing that we were trying. Um, and just always had very, uh, I would say like very successful outreach. Um, with potential customers,
1: and we st- I think we still do.
0: Yeah. And what was your um what was your strategy around pricing? Like, how did you figure that out once you opened the store?
1: As far as the membership, yeah, fee and everything. Yeah. Um, I think we had an idea of what brands were willing to pay from the markets. Like, we could look at like an existing market and see, like, okay, this one is a massive one, and they were charging a thousand dollars a weekend. And so we started very low. Okay. Um, and yeah, I think we had an idea of what they would pay from that, and then move that over to the store. But like even now, we keep that number like very accessible for brands. Like we like mm-hmm. the idea of you know brands that are emerging to be able to partake in this, and you get like a very a wider range of brands that that would sell in the space, which is mm-hmm. kind of cool.
0: Okay, because yeah, I mean, like, what kind of scale are we talking about? Like, what are do you do you even know the annual revenue numbers? of a lot of these brands. Of the brands. Yeah.
1: I would say on the smaller end, you have brands that have literally just started, like yeah. they maybe sell their products on Instagram and yeah. like they probably couldn't even tell you what the number is revenue wise, um, which I think is kind of cool to have like a certain percentage of the products in the store yeah. be like this very homespun vibe. Um, but there's, I mean, we have brands that sell on Sephora. We have brands that are like big brands that are doing, or no, I wouldn't say big brands, but maybe they're doing like 10 million a year in revenue. Okay. Um, so they're still you know, out there building their brand, but like they have manufacturing figured out and distribution and yeah, just like a much more established brand.
0: Okay, got you. Um, So Adora had a question for you about store expense. Yeah, was she one of your group partners? was her Fellowship and and Core. Core. Oh, okay. We love Adora. She's
2: been there from the... From the beginning. Yeah,
0: OG. Um, <laughs> she asked you about a couple things, but one of which was store expansion. So for you guys, like, how do you think about opening up new spaces? How do you find them? Uh, do you think it will work in every city? Um, what are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, for us, um, so we have started in New York City, obviously. We have yeah. two stores here. Um, we'll be doing one more store in about a month. So we'll have three stores for 2017. Um and yeah, I think we, it's tempting to want to just do this very quickly. We have so much demand from yeah. these brands that want to get into spaces. Um, it is expensive to open a store. Like there's like real cost behind all of this, yeah. obviously. Um, so definitely trying to be careful there. But I think now that we have these two successful stores, we'll, you know, have the third opening soon. It gets easier for us to like look at the data to understand like, what's performing, what products are performing, Mm -hmm. what neighborhoods work best for us. Um, And I feel like even... Now, like we have such a good idea of like what a successful store looks like, like as far as square footage as far as as far as location, the types of neighborhoods. Um, so we're getting smarter about it. um and I think as the company grows, it's easier for us to actually look at things like customer data to understand like what the next city is. So like mm-hmm. we have our online business still like understanding where those customers are from helps us decide like, okay, maybe l a is the next place that we're going um and yeah, just be smarter about it and not. So crazy. <laughs> yeah.
2: I will say when it comes to how we pick actual stores and the availability of stores, um, real estate is in crisis right now, um, in particular retail real estate. And I mean, you can speak more to it, but we don't really have um, a dearth of real estate um, people like reaching out to us to Right. Have us help them make their spaces successful, yeah. um, which is really exciting that, you know, both ends of the marketplace when it comes to having a wait list in Williamsburg and in Nolita for our two stores and then also having this like pool of, um, you know, real estate folks that want us to open bulletin spaces. Yeah for them and with yeah. them, it's, it's really exciting.
0: Okay. So can you contextualize that a little bit for people? Cause I don't think it's totally obvious. Like even in, I'm trying to think like maybe it was in Carroll gardens where there's just like strips on, like on main drags yeah. of like stores just vacant. Uh, how did that happen? And like, how are you guys making money off of that opportunity? Yeah.
1: Um, I mean, it's good for our business, but I think yeah, I think everything started to change a little bit as, like, people's shopping behavior has changed. I yeah. think, like, Amazon definitely plays a role in it. I don't think it's, you know, the entire reason that everything has changed so much. Um, yeah. I think people have less of a reason to go to the store for, like, their normal, like, just utility kind of purchase. Um, and so I think those traditional retail stores do, like, get hit because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then For us, it does turn into an opportunity because I think all of these property owners or brokers, like they'll cut deals with us that we would have never gotten nine months ago. Like Hmm. if we want to do, you know, a short-term license agreement and test out a location and do it at a discount um, with like the option to renew. Like, there's just so much that we can do now because of what's happening. Um,
0: What What's happening? Meaning, like a single store is just way too expensive. Yeah, it's
2: there's basically a mismatch between the cost of real estate and like how much it traditionally costs a brand to take on a lease. Also restrictions around how long that lease should be. Um, you know, brokers and property owners want five to 10 year leases. They want long term leases. Um, but for brands, you can see by all of the like hundreds and hundreds of brick and mortar, st- yeah. thousands of brick and mortar stores belonging to big brands that have closed this year alone, that they're not like the store is not their profit center anymore. Um, and so it just, it, it surely does not make sense to like throw tens and tens and thousands of dollars behind a lease every month and, you know, do build out and staff and maintain it when there's, you know, who's to say that that will actually yield Crazy revenue for that, right?
0: I think it's a, it's non obvious if you live in a big city. Yeah. Because like, what are you talking about? All these rest- like all these stores are opening up everywhere, and in reality, most of them aren't even making money. They just look cool to be yeah. in Soho. Or well, there's whatever. been a
2: crazy spike this year. I just read a report um in how many stores are opening. Like, there are a lot of brick and mortar stores opening, but I think that's only possible because real estate. um Like players are realizing that the terms that they've set for their
1: inventory to
2: date is just not going to fly anymore. I feel like
1: a lot of it comes down to like what the, what brands are using the stores for now, I think Um, is like what has really changed. So rather than it being like, you know, kind of an old school retail brand signing a 10 year lease and being like, we want our customers to come here and like buy product. I think you see a lot of these like newer players and direct to consumer startups that are using it as more of a marketing channel or as a way to interact in person with this, like, massive digital audience that they've grown. And so in those scenarios, like, it doesn't make sense for them to sign a 10-year lease. Like, that doesn't, like, if you are comparing it to, like, a Facebook ad or, like, some other kind of marketing, you wouldn't buy, like, a 10-year Facebook ad or something. <laughs> like, you would, yeah. it, it makes more sense for it to be targeted and short-term, um and something that is experiential and more on the marketing side than like yeah like your major profits but real estate like hasn't caught up to that yet <laughs> yeah
0: yeah yeah so you, this weird time are they um are they catching up to you like are you guys this like arbitrage right now until the market changes or is this always going to be an opportunity
1: i think that you'll see a lot of these direct-to-consumer startups especially the ones that have been around longer and you already see people like Warby we doing this where they have like more traditional longer term leases yeah. and and i think that totally makes sense for them mm-hmm. um but I, I think you'll see a mix of both i think like it's nice for the customer to have this kind of influx of rotating stores and experiences um but i think for i think for like the smart direct-to-consumer startups that like nail the experience and nail like the purpose of their store mm-hmm. um it like you can kind of move into a long-term lease and that's actually like what we're starting to do yeah. with our business like hmm. we started off with these six-month license agreements where mm-hmm. we would test out a space um and in our Williamsburg store and our Nolita store it like the it, it works well for us we've kind of nailed the experience and so now we've moved to long-term leases there wow.
0: okay. yeah
1: and so like we have like much more um, reliable supply, or we can book yeah. out brands like months in advance and not be kind of like shuffling oh, all over New York, that. which That's is insane. like, which is <laughs> not, pack your bags, yeah, we are don't
0: want to be there too bad. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do you guys have, did you have to get um, fancy with your fundraising? Cause this is kind of non-traditional, right? Like yeah. having all of these leases and stuff, is it different than a normal startup raising money?
1: Um I think for this stage it didn't seem to be too different. I think we definitely you know ran into a lot of questions about like Ooh, this is like a physical like physical <laughs> yeah. thing and a real estate thing and like there's a lot of questions obviously. Yeah. Um but I think we had enough traction and data to show that like okay the unit economics of this like shared retail space works Mm -hmm. um and that it is very scalable because of the membership model um but yeah i think anytime you're dealing with real estate or anything i think we work definitely paved the way though i feel like
2: we work with their co-working model granted um you know they're (laughs) light years ahead of where we are (laughs) and it will take some time to get there but i think that you know given how well they're doing and their valuation and just how like prolific they are and how many spaces they open up it's like oh okay physical space isn't necessarily like the scary devil like end all of it's not going to kill us um So yeah, luckily we had them as, as a roadmap.
0: So speaking of killing, um, Adora, (laughs) Adora asked, uh, why did old department stores like just die off? Like what's your So many reasons.
2: Um, I think it's a few different things and Alana kind of touched on this, the way that the internet has just changed how we shop. Um, the internet will win at a series of things that stores will always fail at. Um, like with the internet, you can get anything you need um, immediately. There's a wide selection. You can toggle for a specific price and a specific location, a certain delivery date. Um, I think with department stores, like that's what they still do. It's like when you walk into a department store, it's just like a massive empty space with a ton of different product categories. Um, it's not tailored to a specific customer. Um, there's no like experiential or discovery element. And it all just seems kind of ad hoc. There's like kitchenware <laughs> with like maternity clothes, with yeah. baby clothes, with like fancy handbags. It's just and like makeup. this never ending. Yeah. And selection. it's, and it's yeah. like, if I wanted to explore product like that, like if that's where my head's at, I'm just going to go on Amazon or I'll go on the internet or I'll go on bloomingdales.com. I'm not going to like physically show up. So I think department stores have failed because the things that they're good at are the things that the internet is good at. And the internet will just always win because it's right at your fingertips. Um, I think the other thing that, uh, department stores aren't good at is just product selection Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, replenishing the store with fresh new product. Um, they can't be super reactive. Oftentimes they're buying a ton of product upfront. They're doing like crazy flash sales to offload products so that they can make way for new product, but that just seems to cheapen the entire department store experience. <laughs> yeah. So I feel like they're just kind of stuck in this weird middle ground where the things that they're doing to try to um, improve or actually hurting them hmm. in a
1: lot of instances i hmm. don't know if you'd add anything to that i think in a lot of cases too they have these massive footprints and these stores have been around for like a long time yeah. so it's there's it's no easy task to be like oh yeah. let's just renovate you know hundreds of stores across right. the country that are massive like they're in a very difficult position um where yeah innovating is not easy yeah for totally. them And we're obviously at an advantage of being very new and having like two small (laughs) stores. But I think for us, like we're able to see like, okay, we know that like we can compete with Amazon and like the internet with experience and with... Uh, these stores that are experience driven and that are like, you know, built around a certain community. And so, like, being able to start from that point and build from there right. it makes it a lot easier for us to do that. For yeah. Them, obviously. But so there's the one advantage.
0: <laughs> you, it's heavily curated, right? Like, right, you're yes. definitely picking people, uh, picking vendors rather. Um, so how are you deciding, like, what goes in a store? So, uh, Mike Malkow, I mispronounce everyone's name and <laughs> I say it on every podcast. Sorry, Mike. Uh, it's okay. Um, How do you know what users want at these stores?
2: It's honestly, it's a ton of data feeding into our selection process. So we look at Instagram. We look at the posts that are performing well, not only on our Instagram, but like what is going on in the zeitgeist of Instagram right now? Like Uh what is our customer looking at? What is she liking? What is she engaging with? So Um,
0: even just there, so you've segmented to female buyers at, at this point okay. in time Coming yes out, yeah. for both of our okay.
2: stores um we obviously look at pr- sales like we this this like successful store didn't crop out of nowhere like as we've told you we had markets that sold product we had this initial version of the store before we turned it into this editorial theme that sold product like yeah. we have three years of data around Things that have definitely not performed well, and then the things that have, have done pretty well. So that information has been really helpful. Um, and then Maggie, who I mentioned earlier, basically goes through all that data and looks at the brands that are applying to sell with us. Um, and she says, Okay, this brand is great, but like these are the five products that will perform best, or like we're really low on this product category. I think it should be this aesthetic over this one because last month, like this crafty look like didn't do well across five. Five different product categories so it's very there is like a lot of data being fed into the decisions but we always have like our own human touch on what we think we in ways we are our customer so it's like we sure. not like what do we like but we you <laughs> but know we, it's a little bit of our taste thrown thrown in the was mix. there
0: something that you both loved and didn't do well at all
2: a product yeah um, i'm sure oh yes i can think of something so I was in LA for a period of time in 2015, um, during our editorial version of Ventures. And there's this amazing, amazing designer. His name is Andrew Hahn. First name Andrew, spelled normal Hahn, spelt H-A-A-N. Okay. He does these insane, beautiful, um, like hand drawn geometric prints on graph paper. And I did this whole photo shoot with him, this long interview. He's like the kindest, most lovely, unbelievable man in the universe. <laughs> and we put his stuff, his, his work in our Williamsburg store. And I think he so, and granted, they're, they're expensive. They take a lot of time. Yeah. Um, they're around like two, uh, well, like 125 to $250 depending on the print. And he sold two and like that was that. Um, and that was just kind of us like loving him and loving, knowing how much labor went into these prints and like how detailed they were. Um, and we thought they were absolutely stunning and they just didn't, they didn't perform. But has
0: art performed well in the past?
2: Prints do well. Prints do well for us. I
1: think we, what we've learned with both of the stores and just in general is these like the lower price point products work for us. Um, and so we've kind of made the entire vibe of the store, this very like accessible price point uh like less than a 100
0: bucks type stuff yeah
1: even and then like i like our average order value right now is like 40 bucks um and so i think it's it it adds to the experience of it where like anyone that walks in can buy something it's not this like exclusive inaccessible place where you're just looking around being like cool i literally can't do anything (laughs) in here um and so yeah i think everyone it kind of like puts a smile on everyone's face yeah and Uh knowing who our customer
2: is and what her disposable income looks like based on our information it's like you know, I don't think there's a world in which at this point we'd ever create a store like that because that's just not, she She can't shop with us yes. if, that, <laughs> if we do that. So that's
0: funny. Okay. So uh, going back to applying for YC, both of you are non technical. Is yes. that accurate? Okay. Yes. Uh, what is your advice? So Deepak asked, What's your advice for non technical founders applying to YC?
1: I would say, I mean, for us, so we applied three times. So okay. <laughs> we applied for fellowship. We, uh, applied a, a middle time where we didn't get in because we had just pivoted to the market thing okay. and then we applied the third time and finally got in. But um I think to be able to like one, be persistent and keep applying. But I think for us, we were able to show a lot of traction mm-hmm. every like six months when we were applying. Mm. Like even when we started, like Ali and I were still working at our old job, but like we had built all this stuff and built this whole like editorial site. Um, the second time we applied, like we had this whole new model and we had like revenue and it was like, uh, it was, uh, uh, yes, we had just pivoted, but we like we had done a lot in a yeah. short period mm-hmm. of time. And then I think the third time, the big difference was we had a ton of traction. We had been working on it for over a year. And I think we were finally able to make the argument that like, this is very scalable um, and then for the non-technical side to be able to, like, really explain and, like, explain confidently that we didn't actually need that at this stage of the business. Mm. So I think, um, obviously, like... You know, most YC companies, like, have a technical co-founder, and that's, like, a massive part of their business. Um, I think for us at that stage, like, we were really able to explain why we, like, weren't really at the stage just yet where we needed it. And I think we were approaching the stage where we were going to need it. Um, And now we have a bunch of remote developers that are <laughs> amazing, kind of building everything for us. But, yeah, I think um we were just able to really show that, like, for this stage of the business, like, we're okay without a technical co-founder. So...
0: Same advice for you, Allie?
1: Um, yeah, I would say the same thing. I think definitely
2: speaking confidently to why you don't need that person. I mean, I think something that we always really emphasized was like we were cobbling together like pre-existing platforms that did what we needed at the time. Yeah. Um, so for us, it's like we're focused on building a profitable business. And why should we spend time building a technology when we don't even know what it needs to look like yet? We clearly from telling you our story, we had no idea what we were building. <laughs> Thank God we didn't, didn't build anything <laughs> because it would have taken a ton of time and a ton of money. Um, and Alana and I both from the get go were like, we want to create something that from day one, someone is handing us money to give to them. Like we want to create a service. We want to create a product that we know people need from mm-hmm. the start mm-hmm. and then refine the service and the product around that customer. So now we're building this platform after learning for the past two years, like what tech do we need to do like retail as a service in this way? Like how will our customers uh, work with us like more easily and more efficiently through this technology? Like what the elements actually have to be right? Um, I guess the, the advice I'd give would be, I mean, if you're building a te- if you're building like a very, te- if you're building software, like get a technical co-founder, like, you know, it's, it's really important to have someone by your side to go through the ups and downs. And if the product is going to be tech from the start, like, I don't really know why you would outsource that. Yeah. Um, but otherwise, if you're doing something unconventional like us, we were doing like a retail real estate um, business, you know, just really go in there ready to explain why it's, you know, the tech isn't necessarily first and foremost Right yeah. now,
1: and I think we like by showing everything that we had cobbled together was kind yeah. of impressive on its <laughs> own. We're like, well, we have Squarespace doing this, and we have Shopify doing this. And like, there was like six different existing platforms that were really doing the job. And I think our biggest bottleneck was like figuring out all of these things about the business and about the next space and real estate. like it had nothing to like technology wasn't holding us back in any mm-hmm. way. So right. I think proving that,
0: I think that's a really great piece of advice, like something that people even on the technical side should consider, because so often they're like, well, should this be in Ruby or Python? And like, how much machine learning do I need before I apply to YC? And for the most part, no one is using their product. Like yeah, no you just really need cares. to like
1: get it out there and like see if how people would use yeah. it. Yeah. And yeah, if we had spent a ton of money building some like beautiful editorial platform, and we'd be like out of business. Like we would have run a ton of money. Right. Already, like, so. This is the <laughs>
0: easiest way to find silverware for your. Yeah, it exists. Just push a button and <laughs>
1: no, no, there.
0: That's so good. Do you um? Do you remember what the actual numbers are? This is such a common question. I figured I'd ask. Like, what did your growth look like before YC when you applied successfully?
1: um when we before we applied so successfully. like a year ago yeah so this would have been like october of last year I, we our growth numbers were great then because that's when we we started to do the markets every single okay. weekend and then we had just launched the store so that summer our numbers our revenue was like doubling every month because okay. we were like had more and more Markets coming up, and all of those were fully booked out. And then we had just launched the store, so we had like six months of space to book out for that, and all of that's prepaid. So like our numbers looked really good because of that.
0: Okay, and um, just kind of tangentially, uh, do you guys have counterintuitive opinions about retail that you like? You think the market's changing in a way that most people don't?
2: I real I like everything swings like a pendulum, so. I don't know, I I think about the store that we're opening for holiday, for example, and the entire, like, ethos of the store is, like, bringing back the nostalgia of, like, going with your girlfriends or your family to the mall and, like, Like getting
1: these mall vibes. Yeah, (laughs) and, like, you know, walking out with, like, a ton of
0: shopping
2: bags (laughs) on your arm and piling it into the trunk, and I feel like with so many things going on right now with, like, the state of our country and how the internet and like all of this attention being on the internet and all this time spent being on the internet has just like kind of reached a tipping point where I feel like people are looking and being like, Hmm, like I don't know if I want to be like staring at my computer all day or like staring at my phone all day or like in this internet world 24 seven, I feel like there is going to be a pendulum shift away from this and toward like interaction and Being in person and connecting face to face. And so I don't know when that's going to happen. Obviously these things happen in like decade long chunks. Um, but I, I hope it comes soon. And I think that that definitely informs how we approach retail and how we approach building our stores. Like in our holiday store, there's going to be like a lounge area and activation area where people can like explicitly do events, um, and do workshops and do things where there's like community building, Mm -hmm. um, and actual human interaction. Um, so I don't know if that's necessarily counterintuitive, but I feel like a lot of people are figuring out, trying to figure out like, how do we make Instagram more shoppable or like, how do we make our newsletters more shoppable or like, how do we do this? And it's like, my greatest joy in life is walking by our Nolita store on like an odd hour on like Tuesday at like 3 PM maybe, and seeing that it's packed and just being like, wow, they're like... I'm, we're not wrong. And there are women that like actually want to physically show up in a store and they, the customers communicate with each other and they all, lo- I always get DMS on the bulletin Instagram about how much they love our retail staff. And it's like, it warms my heart. And it just makes me confident that like, this could be the direction retail is going in. And if so,
1: we're on the cusp of it. Mm. Yeah. I totally agree with that. I think you also see a lot of, um, a lot of trends in, like, in-store retail design right now where people are getting, like, magic mirrors and, like, these crazy screens in the store. And, like, you can connect your online account and, like, just all this technology in the store. Connect your
2: online account. No, literally. I know, I know, I know, know.
1: But I think that's something that we have really shied away from. I think that, like, we really like the store to feel like this, you know, in-person experience and it's not about like kind of going back to the internet or like somehow having a screen in your face again. Um, and so I don't necessarily know if that would be counterintuitive, but I think for us, um, yeah, to approach the store design in this like new way where it is about the community in the store and about the experience in the store and not about like another. Well, is there a a
0: future of uh, your store without any employees?
1: I don't think so. I think that's, For us, it's such a big part of the experience. Um, I think there's some technology that we are thinking about that will like ease the checkout process where like the point of the employee being there isn't to ring them up, which is what they, part of what they do now. Um, so I'd like to free them up even more where they can just spend more time interacting with the customer. Um, but yeah, I think like the in-store team is such a huge part of the experience and like makes up probably like 50% of the like positive feedback we get. So Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. We, still need, we still need humans. I'm sorry. <laughs> Unfortunately,
0: all right, cool. If you weren't working on bulletin right now, what would you work on? Um,
1: would it, well, you, you could work
0: on it together. If you okay. Want. Well, I we know.
2: well will we would we have like gone through bulletin or would it, would it just be like bulletin <laughs> never happened?
0: Oh, all right, alternate reality. Uh, no. So today,
2: okay, literally today, shit
0: goes if crazy bulletin somehow. Ended somehow, or and it will. It's still going on. Say, so, like, you can't restart it. You have to do something else.
1: Okay. 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 I definitely, I think, I mean, I don't want to speak for you, but I feel like we're both at a place where I don't see us ever going back to, like, a normal yeah. job or, like, working for someone else again. Um, I don't know what I would do, though. Like, I feel like this is just, it'd be so sad <laughs> if we couldn't do it. <laughs> I right, just, just haven't thought about anything else in so long. In insane asylum. Um... I think I would love to do, I mean, for me, like the most fun part about what we do is like the store design and like bringing like life to these kind of Mm. like weird old New York stores, um, as weird as that sounds. And so I think something with that, I could like, I can be happy doing, um, maybe, yeah, just designing other stores. (laughs) (laughs) So basically bulletin, I don't know. I would definitely be writing.
2: Um, I write a lot for bulletin, um, across like our email and, our social, um, and like the editorial site that we once had. Um, it's stuff def- it's like, it comes very naturally to me. And it's one of those feelings. I know like coders get this way when they code. Um, it like makes me high mm-hmm. when I'm writing something. Um, so I don't know, maybe I'd write a book or become like a tech journalist or, um, I don't know, work for a good cause, like a nonprofit of some kind and mm-hmm. handle their communications. Um, I think that would be really fun.
0: What was the most meaningful thing you learned at NYC? Do you have
1: something? Go first. (laughs) I was going to say, I would say working, when so Michael Seibel was our group partner, and I just feel like he was always so good about getting us to focus on, like, the one thing that Mm -hmm. we should be focusing on. And so part of that was just, like, him being... Brilliant and like picking the thing we should be working on. But I think getting into that mindset of like really, really identifying like what your actual one issue is and not worry. Like, I don't know. I think like YC is, it's a crazy busy time and there's so many things to be worrying about. Like, as it always is when you're running a company. And I think, um, just always going back to that and being like, okay, like what is the one thing that you need to be working on and solving and like the thing that can actually affect your business, um, and not getting bogged down with like the millions of other things you could possibly be doing. And he's so good about just like, in his very (laughs) soothing voice, like getting you to focus on, yeah, that one issue. Um, I think
2: something that we learned in both YC Fellowship and YC Core. um, In both instances, we were working in isolation. I mean, during YC Fellowship, we didn't have a team. And then Mm -hmm. during YC Core, our team was mostly based here and we would go back and forth but work together in San Francisco. Um, I think I definitely learned, especially since it was such a uh, pivotal time for us and we were growing and figuring out like what the one thing was, like the ability to, to listen. Um, I think in group office hours just the way that that's structured where you literally go around the room and listen to every single founder talk about the problems that they're facing um you know you give suggestions uh, if you have any like stake in what they're doing or if you have any expertise of like ways that you can help. Um, And I think just listening to each other, mm-hmm. like when you're together all the time in that very like pressure cooker environment, you have to make very quick decisions. You know, you have demo day coming up, like, what are you going to present? What business are you building? Like what is going to be the thing that helps investors understand that like this is the future and mm-hmm. that like they really shouldn't be missing out on this opportunity. Um And I think just, yeah, I think it was one of the best times of us like bouncing ideas off of each other and just amongst a group of really intelligent people that were doing such different things. Um So, yeah, I think it made me a much stronger listener overall.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's such an interesting experience thinking back where you, I don't know, it's like the one time where everything else in your life really stops completely. It's muted. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. so crazy. <laughs> and like, I mean, I guess it always feels that way in a sense when you're running a company. But I think this was like the one time where we had you know, moved out of New York, like moved out of our apartments and everything. Um, and yeah, it's just such an interesting kind of experiment to go through where yeah. it's like what happens when I literally don't do anything else and when I'm living in like a studio, like a 500 square foot studio with my co-founder <laughs> um, eating every meal together. And it's just all you do and all you think about. Um, and so, yeah, I think like that level of intensity is just, it was, yeah, really cool to do that. And I think coming back here and kind of like returning to normal life, like that obviously stuck with us, Mm -hmm. but I don't know. It was just like a cool thing to go through. Also Mm -hmm. pick a good co-founder. Yeah. Because if you end
2: up doing YC, uh, and even if not, like you're stuck for
0: a while. (laughs) Oh, it seems like things are going okay. Still, Yeah. No, I feel,
2: I think, I don't know. I feel very lucky. Me too. Mm -hmm. All right, cool. (laughs) Thanks,
0: guys. Thank Thank you. you. All right, thanks for listening. So, as always, the video and transcript are at blog.ycombinator.com. And if you have a second, please subscribe and review the show. All right, see you next week.